Dotnet Rocks, episode 1093, with guest Chris Love. Recorded Friday, January 16th, 2015. And away we go. Welcome back to Dotnet Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. This is Richard Campbell. We're here for you. Indeed. Because we care. And I like Wednesdays. Yeah. What's up, man? Huh? Doing the thing with the stuff. Thing with the stuff. This is old home week here on .NET Rocks. Yeah, you're enjoying your week, are you? It's a good week. That's nice. Yep. Uh, Chris Love is here, of course, to talk to us, and he'll be here in just a minute. But first, we've got some more Visual Studio goodness for you. Better know framework. Nice. <laughs> All right, buddy, what do you got? Well, I've talked about this before, but it's just so awesome. And so many people may not know about it or not have it. I got to talk about Code Lens. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of awesome. It's a lot of awesome. It's uh, one of these features in Visual Studio 2013 that I just can't get enough of. So uh, basically what it does is it gives you a list of references above your methods, properties, whatever. Mm -hmm. It tells you where... You know, what lines of code are calling it, how many references you have. Uh, unused methods are easy to identify, therefore, so it'll say zero references. It also shows the code tests that call the method in the test status indicator area. And you could easily get to who's calling it and see a list of references, but it's just right there. It's a heads-up display, right? Yeah. The bad news, ultimate only. Yeah. Yeah, but it's a great reason to uh, upgrade because it makes you so much more productive. You know, the less time you spend scrolling through code, looking for stuff, the better. Yeah, absolutely true. Last year, they provided, I think it was an update three, they added support for Code Lens onto GitHub repositories as well. Like, it's starting to get everywhere. I mean, Microsoft really needs to make this available to more versions. It's a, it's such an important capability. Yeah, it really it is. It just makes you a better programmer. Absolutely. But yeah, if you've never seen it, you will be in awe. And if you want to see it, there's plenty of videos and stuff on Channel 9. Just go look for Code Lens, Google Bing it. Uh, Richard, who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off a of show 1033, and that's the one we did with Mr. Paul Sheriff. We were talking about using ASP.NET Web Forms on mobile. Yep. And this comment comes from Rob Murdoch, who says, I have to write in to express my thanks for this episode. We are in the process of migrating from an ASP3 classic wow. enterprise application, as well as modernizing an ASP.NET 2.0 web forms application. Some of the suggestions you made will no doubt enable an iterative approach to getting this done. So remember we talked about it doesn't have to be all one or the other. You can start, just pick a piece of your app and, and convert it over to MVC if that makes sense to you. Like, yeah. You know, you can pick and choose. Yeah. Uh, and Rob goes on to say, uh, regarding the MVC versus web forms question, I'm the old dude that posts comments, including words like ActiveX document, which as ah. we all know, predates.net by a lot. Yeah. I actually thought ActiveX documents were going to take off, but yeah. they had built in problems though. Well, oh, yeah. all of ActiveX did really. Yeah. Well, it, I, I even wrote an article about it way back when. My goodness. Yeah. Uh, I tech edited ASP classic books. My view of web forms versus MVC also includes the intuition that if you're old like me, MVC is more like classic ASP because you are closer to the HTML that is emitted and the HTTP protocol than in web forms, which seemed to want to extract that away, which is exactly what it's trying to do. It's trying to make win forms for web. Right. 
When MVC came out, I jumped because I missed being able to control stuff like the ID attribute. Seems Microsoft is making web forms more approachable for the old dude. Hey, if there was a Pluralsight video that helps me explore using modern tech like Bootstrap and web forms, all the easier. Programming today rocks. Yeah. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. <laughs> hey, Rob. <laughs> Thanks so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NETrocks.com or with any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Windows 8, Windows Phone 7 and 8, iOS and Android. And that brings us to our guest. Chris Love has over 20 years. That's right. 20 years of web development. Probably about 22 or 23 now. Right, Chris? Uh, since 92-ish. So, yeah, probably 22. Yeah. All sorts of web development experience, uh, you know, back before CSS and JavaScript. He's built a wide variety of websites and applications in those years. And in recent years, he's immersed himself into the modern web application space and lives almost entirely above the API. Currently, he's focusing on solving the problems developers and architects are having adopting a winning mobile-first strategy. He's authored three books, including his latest high-performance single-page web applications, he is a seven-time ASP.NET MVP award winner. Uh, Actually, eight, eight now. now. Yeah, because we were just here. Update your bio, Chris. <laughs> uh, member of the ASP Insiders and Internet Explorer user agents. He also authored several JavaScript libraries and regularly speaks at user groups, code camps, and other developer events about modern web development topics. Welcome back, Chris. Hey, it's great to be back. It seems like we just talked a few weeks ago, didn't it? Yeah, it does. But it was longer ago than that. It was a while ago. Yeah. I know. Six months ago. Yeah. A lot of things have happened. Exactly. We have a uh, an interview cadence that's faster than Internet Explorer update cadence. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but, you know, your uh, shows are always very well received, and we always get a lot of comments. You always get a lot of comments on them. Yeah, there was uh, there were some good comments. Uh, I thought in the last episode, um, yeah. there was one. I, I don't have it in front of me, but there was one person who repl- who commented, and I replied back. But I'm I'm not sure if it got through the discuss approval pipeline or something. I'm not totally sure, but he was effectively questioning the ability for me to to achieve things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I tried to reply back. Yeah, I, I believe I could do the application. The application he did he defined really was an RSS feed for a podcast reader. Uh, so like we could build something to monitor all the .NET rocks and run, run his radios and whatnot. Right. And for the most part, I could do everything he says, I says I probably couldn't do the one limitation I would probably run into is I would uh, persist the audio files in index DB. Cause right now you can't, uh, you don't get like file storage directly mm-hmm. like you can in native applications. But I get up to 500 megs in IndexedDB, and you could actually, I believe you could blob store those uh, in IndexedDB. I haven't done that personally, but I've read about it. Um, so to a certain degree, I could I could pretty much pull off everything he was asking about. Yeah, right, cool. So where have you been a- lately uh, in this space? Uh, what are you thinking these days? Um, well, um, since we've talked, uh, I've, been, I've been straddling two different projects of completely opposite uh experiences hmm. uh one is a was well i'm done with i'm done with it now but for now at least um <laughs> one was a was a large enterprise you know uh actually a customer facing application i was working on mm-hmm. um and the other one is actually going through its very first soft launch week right now which has been a very crazy week to say the least it's a and it's a startup 
in San Francisco. It's uh, it's uh, two extremely bright girls that uh, uh, actually found me because of the last book that I wrote and uh, contacted me to ask and asked me to come in and kind of help them build the client experience for their uh, their uh, startup experience. So I've been kind of straddling two different worlds, and it's been um, a very eye-opening experience. It's been a lot of fun, especially with the startup, uh, because of the way that they are not f- afraid of doing things is one way to put it. Yeah. Uh, they're not developers by trade. They actually um, got funded out of uh, Stanford Business School, and it, and part of that process is pitching an idea. And they got some seed money, and uh, they started the process of doing it, and eventually kind of crossed paths with me. And um, they've been great to work with. Um, and it's been exciting because you were talking about like a tool like CodeLens, and you you always like talk about little tools. These girls are fantastic of finding some of these great tools to to work with. And kind of bring them in to the fold. We, you know, you get the handsome ones list of tools and whatnot. Um, I, I told the girls I need to create, if the startup fails, I need to create a list and, and daily podcast of the latest cool tools and things online. So yeah, that could, right. that could be a thing. Could be. I, I really think so. Um, I mean, like the, I didn't know about, I didn't know about Trello. We've been using Trello, uh, for, you know, task management and that is going awesome. Love Trello. Uh, that is a great tool. Uh, they've introduced Slack as like a main communication channel thing, and it kind of hooks into all kinds of stuff. Dude, it's so funny. I use Trello and Slack all the time. Love these tools. I had never heard of the two of those. Um, we've been using, uh, actually, just before we came on here, I got to ask about how to test uh, APIs. And we've been using RunScope. It's something I had I had seen, but it wasn't like really at the fore of my, forefront of my head. And, and they found that because they wanted to make sure that the API they had being built was actually running without having to run the front end code and write some complicated unit test scenarios. Um, and there's been a few other little tools we kind of tried and tossed overboard and, and different things like that. And, uh, um, so that side of it's been extremely refreshing, um, not being tied to some of the enterprise things that we're doing mm. and, um, and just really being in a, in a I guess, uh, an atmosphere that's accepting of, uh, of trying things new and not mm-hmm. being afraid. Mm-hmm. Whereas the other side of the fence, when I go into enterprises, I get a, I get a lot of pushback yeah. of, oh, well, we can't really do that yet. Racked with fear. And um, and sort of like that comment, the reason why I brought that comment up is I get I get the comment that the, the person made on the on the previous podcast um, quite a bit, uh, you know, because I go out and speak at user user groups and meetups and inevitably there's at least one or two people in there that say, I don't I don't know that you can do that. And I've had conversations with, you know, other MVPs and you know, sometimes it's telling me I can't do stuff that I have actually done. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Well, and, uh, <laughs> let me tell yeah. you. And, and, you know, and sometimes it's frustrating because, you know, it's, it's stuff that I've done that is effectively behind a firewall and, you know, something I can't publicly share. Right. Right. Um, yeah. That's one of the reasons why I basically par- uh, parried off six, six weeks of my time last Christmas and wrote that book. Cause I'm wanting to get at least the initial essence of stuff out there. And, and some sort of structured format there there's probably at least as i mean the amazon said it was like a 400 page printed i don't really know but i probably cut that much out of it too because i just didn't have enough time to get things together to to really enunciate ideas well and stuff so but the main thing is you know the web is a lot more capable and advanced i think than than a lot of developers give it credit I think a lot of developers still think the web's stuck in 2008 for some weird reason. Yeah. Right. Well, I know a few web developers that are. <laughs> 
Yeah, 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 there really are. And you know, it's interesting the the comment that you pulled from uh, Paul Sheriff's episode. Uh, the guy said he had a, a, an ASP3 site uh, to work with, um, and I, I think that site would probably be a whole lot easier to modernize than a web form site. Yeah, and I think that's it was exactly what he was saying. You know, I, I don't. I was just talking to a guy about ASP, and and we we're saying, you know, PHP is thriving for a reason, and the two are just not that different. No, they really aren't. Uh, I've, I've actually kind of looked some more at PHP lately, and I'm like, all this is is classic ASP. Yeah. No, I feel the same way. Right. Which you know, in effect, is if you look at things like handlebars and mustache and and some of the binding uh, syntax, it's effectively all the same thing. You know, it's just merging data on the servers that only client. Well, I think what happened to ASP is, you know, the battle of ASP was not that it was a bad product. It needed the tools around it. You know, what makes PHP safe today is the testing har- harnesses and the, and the frameworks around it to keep you under control so you don't get into terrible trouble. And before that, that had a chance to form around ASP, ASP.NET got built. You know, it's funny you say that. Um, there was a big project I did in the summer of 2000. And I actually built my own test harness to run it. Um, and it was a classic ASP site. And I had to do it because we were hitting a mainframe that we had to pay every single time we flipped a page. Right. And I actually built a test harness and mocked out everything coming from the mainframe so I wouldn't hit it. Whoa. So I wouldn't run up the expenses for my customer. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're building an API emulator. Yeah. I, exactly. That's, that's ultimately what I did. I didn't realize at the time I was doing, I was really doing unit testing. Uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I was doing. Um, but yeah, we've got tooling that's so much more advanced. I mean, you look at, uh, well, just look at what the ASP.NET team's doing in Visual Studio over the last couple of years. You know, Mads Christensen's really leading this little, uh, you know, side skunkwork project called Web Essentials that is really an essential part of the web development experience, in my opinion. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and Mads is one of those unsung heroes, although we've, we've had him on before. He's sung. Done some singing, <laughs> but he's just, he, it's amazing what the guy has done quietly. I don't think he sleeps. <laughs> I really don't. He's one of those guys. I know. So it's interesting because I'm, I'm, I actually, with the, this little startup, I'm working with, you know, some guys out in Silicon Valley too. And of course they're on Macs and, you know, they don't, they don't understand Visual Studio. And I've been talking to them about the difference between it and, and Sublime, which I've, I've used Sublime and, and I do like Sublime and, uh, I have. There's another. Uh, what's the brackets or whatever that Mac guys use? I haven't. I haven't used that one. I've even seen it to be honest with you. But uh, they don't use it. But you know, just tell them some of the advantages I've gotten Visual Studio. They're like, oh yeah, I really wish I had that. You know, like the uh, you know, like some of the syntax highlighting stuff that that's built in there with Web Essentials. You know, showing you like duplicate class definitions and CSS and mm. uh, the IntelliSense that I get and all that kind of stuff. They they they're really kind of jealous of that. Yeah, we forget how good we've got it in Studio. Sure do. You know, and they're they're really making it an, a development environment for everything. I mean, you look at what they're trying to do with Node, right? And they're making it a first class experience as well. The Visual Studio is doing like really good Node integration right now, right? Mm-hmm. And which has been useful for me because uh, the startup I'm working with, it, we're using Node, and I started off with Express. Although I may actually pull that out eventually because. Uh, it's been interesting uh, just kind of playing with Node and working with it. I see the inspirations that the ASP.NET team has for vNext and why they're structuring vNext the way they are. Very modular, because that's what Node is. It's just a very modular system. Yeah, only what you need. And also very cross-platform. I mean, they're going over to Linux for crying out loud. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, MVC was an answer to, to Ruby. This time they're really going gung ho. Like you said, they're, they're making this completely cross platform and always. And you think it, it also has something to do with the way they see Windows going, which is going, you know, and the operating system is becoming less and less important these days. And, you know, I, that's why I see a, a huge, uh, uh, push for containers, you know. Mm-hmm. Where the container has the OS specific stuff, and it, you know, you can think of it like application virtualization, but it, it's not going to matter soon what platform you know you're running stuff on. It's all going to be about the container. Well, and I think a lot of the computing side is going to the cloud. You look at the the new compiler and how that's going to work. Um, you know, pushing that back and forth to Azure and kind of back you know background compiling for you. Mm. I mean, that to me, that's like pretty amazing that that's that's the case but i think that also gives testimony to the fact that you can build a client experience and offload stuff you know yeah. that's what it, that's what instagram really worked out because they realized the iphone honestly had no didn't have enough horsepower to process the image to do the filters yeah so when you are doing those filtering it's actually a slide of hand it's uploaded the image in the background the servers doing all kinds of processing all it's doing on the screen is applying css filters Mm. And that's what you're seeing. It's not actually changing the bits in the image. Um, and so that's kind of a slide of hand showing how the cloud's kind of doing the real work behind the scenes and, uh, and everything. So it's, it's, I think it's one of those things that like Rocky Locke would be great at because he really kind of understands how to shift processing and, and that kind of architecture. And he kind of thinks that way a lot when, uh, if you get a chance to talk to him and, um, you know, he's been fascinating to listen to, I think about those kind of concepts. Um, anyway, so, uh, but, uh, you know, in Node, working with the Node and Express ecosystem, and then, um, you know, because, you know, I write a lot of JavaScript libraries out of necessity most of the time. Um, but I've also I've also had to work with Angular. I've had to work with uh, Backbone. I haven't had to do an Ember project yet, although I have, like, looked into it. I've done, a, I've done like, I pulled a lot of good things out of all those things and kind of put it into my, my modular architecture. Um, for example, I've got like the view engine concept and, and stuff. And, and the way I'm looking at this, the spas that I'm building now, the infrastructure that I build, what I've really done is I've replicated effectively what ASP.NET's been doing for us for years in the, the browser. And you've kind of got a mini web server working for you to actually run the single page application. And um, there's so many possibilities. Uh, uh, so like I said, I've got these other guys I'm working with. And one of them has been with us for like 10 days now. And, now the application's up, actually up in production, and he's been testing it. You know, he made a comment this afternoon in a in a conversation. He's like, "This thing is so fast," and and that's one of the things that I, I think everybody has to understand. You've got to be able to make your application fast everywhere, and uh, you know that there's challenges in mobile, and so we wanted sure. to talk you know, some about the mobile first kind of stuff. And um, the reason why I, I, I go mobile first is because it forces you to think in terms of how do I make this application run efficiently display with a good user experience on smaller screens and what's the important information. And then as you get more screen real estate, you can adjust it to, you know, involve more things or, or adjust the navigation and stuff and such. So easier to design for a small screen and scale up than design for a big screen and scale down. Because, well, this is inevitably what happens, and, and I get this more in enterprises than anything else. Uh, they've got a desktop existence, and they, they're like, well, let's just make this mobile now. And, and it's a matter of, they're like, well, let's just figure out how we can shift the stuff around the screen and get everything on the, on the screen that we've got on the desktop. And that's, that's not always what you want. Sometimes you have to think, what's, the, what's probably the use context 
of my interface on a small screen as compared to somebody sitting at their desk. Right. It almost forces you to simplify. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we kind of talked a little bit in the background kind of setting this up is the stuff that, that came out over the holidays, right? Uh, Walmart uh, said that uh, 70% of their sales over over Christmas holiday was uh, actually uh, on Walmart.com. I want to verify that it's actually on the website. came from a mobile device. Yeah, I was stunned by that number. I, I was and I wasn't at the same time. Uh, I knew that they would probably have a, a big presence there um, because what I what I see trending as I go out and see people walking down the streets and in airports and in the malls and just talking to friends as we're hanging out and stuff like that, they don't use their desktop computers very much anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and another thing that I see, I saw a lot, in the airports in particular, and I've talked to a few folks on planes and then, and you know, in the terminals, they were using Macs and, uh, and they were doing a lot of business work for lack of a better term. Mm. And I said, you know, so your company lets you have Macs. And I go, no, I've got, I've got the company issued PC in here, but they, uh-huh. there's people, there's, yeah, there's people that teach us how to use the Mac on the, on the corporate network. Right. Wow. And so I, that's what I'm doing. They're working around it. That and all, and they're using their iPads. They're 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 Franken padding them. You know, they're making them look like a surface. Uh, <laughs> Franken padding. <laughs> I love it. Um, and they just they just don't want to use the big clunky, clunky laptops anymore. They're they're throwing those in their their carry on suitcase. And yeah. And as soon as they get out of the office, uh, and you know, they don't even in the office. I'm seeing people use Macs and 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 tablets of various kinds and. I think IT and some of the development teams are not noticing what's right in front of their face because yeah. they're they're using Windows with Visual Studio, and this this is a this is a common thing that I I see not uh, recognized I guess when we're developing applications we tend to develop them for ourselves on our development machines mm-hmm. yeah and we don't develop them with our actual users in mind and that's why I use the term user first development. And I have yeah. another term called developer first development. And you, when you're developing the client end, anything above the API, it's all about the user. It's not about you. Let me give you an analogy. In the recording studio, in the best recording studios in the world, you'll often see on the, uh, in the mixing, right up near the mixing console, a crappy boom box and some crappy PC speakers. And also, you know, mid-size speakers as well as the great ones. Right. And the reason for that is because before you call it done, you have to listen to it through those crappy speakers and make sure you can hear everything. You know, it's all about being able to hear everything. Sometimes you mix, especially with, you know, modern music, you mix the bass down so low, there's nothing up in the mid-range to catch, you know, uh, to be caught by these little speakers. And so you might not even hear it in the little speakers. Where in the studio, it sounds great because you have this amazing speaker. That's right. So the analogy is on every developer's desktop, there should be a crappy laptop. And that crappy laptop, it should be deployed to and tested there. Well, I would also say that you need a device lab. Yeah, sure. It's not just enough to have a crappy laptop. You have to have lots of things. I still see way too many developers saying, I don't need to develop with touch in mind. <laughs> yeah. And it was interesting uh, in the enterprise, uh, probably a week or so after we talked last, 
there was a, an upper level manager. Um, I think he's right at vice president level, if I remember right. And he had just gotten his new company laptop and it had touch. He made the comment, I can't believe how often I'm touching the screen and how weird it feels to use the mouse anymore. That's yeah. funny. Yeah. And I was like, oh, even on the laptop, he's he's already figured out touch is a lot more fun to use. And he's on the other side. Yeah. And, you know, that that's another thing, too. Uh, de- de- designing for touch and, and even responsive responsiveness. This is this is typically what's happening when I'm going in these enterprises. They're like, we want you to help us build a modern application, but we just want to do the desktop. And then we get towards the end. They're like, okay, now can you make it responsive? We kind of decided that people are using our iPads for it. <laughs> kind of. It is really hard to go back and, re- and retrofit that. If you think yeah, about if you think about a typical uh, masthead uh, navigational scenario where you've got drop downs and stuff like that, uh, that's, a, that's a hard trick to pull off effectively on a touch device with no mouse, like, a, like a, an iPad, for example. Um, and I, I think we're also going to see a, a, a lot of smaller Windows tablets being purchased lately. I got my dad an HP Stream 7 for Christmas, and I went and got myself one. Right. Because I was like, I, I really need this to test on. So that's a 7-inch screen? It's a 7-inch screen. But mm. you, know what, you know what I also did at the same time? I got, I got a Microsoft Miracast, hooked it into my TV, and I project, oh, yeah. I project my HP Stream and my Surface onto my big TV in the living room. Wow. Wireless. Nice. And, you know, that was actually a trick to get my nine-year-old to do her homework. That <laughs> ah. <laughs> she could do it on the big screen? Oh, yeah. She's, she's like, oh, my gosh, it's so great. So, she's got the Bluetooth keyboard. She's got the little stream that's sitting over there she didn't have to touch. And she's sitting there in front of the TV typing up her – her the because she has to write, like, little stories every week and stuff like right. that. Right. Now, for those who missed it, tell us again about this device. Miracast. It's a Miracast. I think is what it's called. Uh, I got it at the Microsoft store. Um, I got stopped in to get the HP stream, and I said, it'd be really great if I could just – you know, project this onto the TV, like with a Chromecast. And the girl goes, oh, we have this thing called a Miracast. It's $69. Would you like one? I was like, how does it work? And she goes, oh, we have it hooked up over here. And I was like, okay, sold. So how does it work? I mean, you, you, is it a, it's a, it's a Bluetooth, a Bluetooth display. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a little, like a, it's a little device about, I don't know, the size of two fingers put together, I guess. Um, Anyway, you plug one end of it into your HDMI port, and it runs off USB power. And there's always – most modern TVs have a, uh, a USB port near the HDMI. Okay. And you plug the USB side into that to drive the power. And then when you when you change the input channel on your TV, it powers up the Miracast. And you can pair it with your uh, Windows – like Windows 8 device or whatever. Okay. And then you just – so what you do is you just swipe from the right, choose uh, devices, and then you do project – and if it's not already listed there, you can say add wireless display, and then you just pair it through Bluetooth. And is it as good good a quality as you expect? Yeah. Um, so for the stream, it, it's a one-to-one. I think the aspect ratio is about the same as my TV. For my uh, Surface, it does reduce the resolution down a little bit and changes the aspect ratio a little bit. Oh. But it's still it's – still, it's, uh, so I've got a Surface 3 Pro. I think it takes it down to kind of a Surface 1 uh, screen resolution, which is still pretty high. Like 720p. Or 720p, okay, yeah. Yeah. Could be also my TV 720p, I think, too, so that could be part of it. Wow, yeah, I didn't know Bluetooth was that, had that much bandwidth. Yeah, and I've got a Chromecast, I've never actually hooked it up, but I think it works very similar. Hmm. Yeah, no, this has become the new thing, and and for me, as a guy running conferences, I could, you know, we can't tell you how much money we spend providing connectors for every kind of laptop to plug Mm -hmm. into every kind of projector. Yeah. The idea that you would just wirelessly beam. 
you know, and that uh, that got me thinking too. I'm like, I'm going to take this to some of the places I'm speaking at this year because more and more of them have an HDMI uh, connection, right? And that would give me the ability to just walk around with the surface and actually touch the screen and make it a little more obvious what I'm doing in front yeah. of people to sell the, the point you need to you do the touch. And, uh, you know, it's interesting too. I have people ask me all the time about my surface when I'm out and about. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I was actually at an event in New York City last night with uh, actually a bunch of CSS developers. And I had a bunch of them going, how, what is it like to work on that? You know, how, how ah. nice is it? Is it, is it low power? Like they thought it was like a low processor. And I'm like, no, it's, it's on par with the MacBook that you've got there. It's an i7 and eight gigs of RAM. They're like, you're kidding me, mm. you know? And, uh, yeah. you know, and I have, you know, normal people ask me too. Um, so, uh, my, my stepdaughter and I are doing karate and I've had several people at the dojo say that they've got surfaces for their kids and stuff now. And, um, so I think it's starting to get some traction kind of quietly. Mm. Um, and I see them in the airport quite a, t- quite a bit and sometimes on the planes and things like that. So, well, Richard, yeah, buddy, you know what time it is? Oh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time to fly to the moon. <laughs> Oh my. In other words, uh, it's actually time to give away a Telerik DevCraft collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who won, Telerik DevCraft is the most complete .NET toolbox for web, mobile, and desktop development. With the addition of UI for Xamarin to the DevCraft bundle, you can create compelling native mobile experiences with your C-sharp skills. Download a free trial at tinyurl.com slash devcrafttrial. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Jonas Chapuis. Congratulations, Jonas. Golf clap for you, sir. I think I'm saying that right. C-H-A-P-U-I-S is his last name. Jonas, I hope you're listening and hope you answer your email because you won. He just won the Telerik DevCraft Collection. It's a big pile of awesome from Telerik. And if you don't know what we're talking about here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the fan club. Indeed. Yeah. And we've done it three times now. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, so so it's real. It's we're not playing around here. We're not Nigerian princes. We've given away fifteen thousand dollars worth of gear so far. Yeah. Oh, guys, y'all have given away way more than that over the years. Oh, so. That's true. <laughs> You're I mean, too kind. That Telerik bundle is a couple of grand worth of software right there. Yeah, it really is. Uh, Chris, it's your turn. If you had to go shopping right now, five grand, what would you buy, sir? First off, I would get a Microsoft Band because I really want one and I can't get one. They're hard to find. They are hard to find. Especially in my size. So <laughs> I think everybody wants a large one like I do. Yeah. Um, I've uh, I've actually visited Microsoft stores, I think, in four states since they came out. And they're always out of stock. Wow. And they're out of stock online. So I'm, I've got the email thing, let me know, uh, set up. But that's only 200 of the 5,000. So what would I do with the remaining 4,800 minus tax, right? 24 um, bands. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. You sell them on eBay. Uh, oh, well, right now they're they're actually is a black market for them on eBay. Yeah, people are selling them above cost now. Wow, crazy. Yeah. Um, so okay, this is this is going to be unusual. I don't. I, I hope no one's said anything similar to this. What I would do, I would uh, book away a whole week, 
book the flights, book hotel, transportation, and I would go out to Silicon Valley and hang out at meetups and find some startups to hang out with and kind of shadow them and kind of see how they're building stuff. Neat. And just really absorb and learn from what they're doing. And I've, that's, that's kind of what I'm, I'm excited about. I just see so much stuff and it's such highly concentrated there. Uh, I can't imagine it not being a good experience. What would you expect to learn that you don't already know? Um, well, uh, there's, there's a lot of people doing interesting things. Like uh, here recently I found out about a, uh, a web framework built on Node called Sail.js. And, you know, maybe sit down with those guys for a few hours and just kind of pick their brains and kind of watch how they work and, uh, and, and kind of bring that into the fold into my workflow and knowledge base and, and, and that kind of stuff. And hanging out and talking with people like I do at normal.net user groups. You know, we're talking about the ASP.NET next. I mean, one of the things that Scott Hunter did with his team he took them to some of the web development conferences that weren't .NET and made them not take the Windows machine and, and just sit down and figure out what these guys are doing and why they're learning, how they're learning it. And, yeah. uh, I, you know, that, that can really have a lot of influence because we get really, I think we get a lot of tunnel vision, um, sitting in, especially in the enterprise stack, uh, sitting in our company and just kind of focusing on what we're allowed to work with. Mm. Yeah, quite complacent, really. Well, and I think, I think a lot of developers are not confident enough to say, Hey, we need to get node so we can run grunt. For example, um, they're afraid that the IT department's not going to let them install it or whatnot. Right. Well, they don't, and they don't even want to ask. Yeah. And we, they, that's a really bad culture that we've built up over the years. Cause we've just been told no so many times. Mm. Well, the world is changing now. It, it really has. Yeah. Even for us, Microsoft folks, I mean, we're doing more on other platforms than we ever have before. And Microsoft is going there. Yeah. Well, look at my, look at open source, the way that's affecting the stuff right now. Even in the enterprises, we pull down JavaScript libraries, for example. Mm. Well, in the past, that might have been a big corporate no-no because you needed somebody to go through and kind of check for the licensing. And is it going to possibly do something malicious, you know, malicious against our, our customers and our data and our internals and, you yeah. know, all these weird things you got to go through, right? Right. Uh, do we really have time to do that in the pace that we're that things are going at right now? And I, I don't really know that we do. Um, but I also look at it as if you, if you download a small library, it shouldn't be that hard for the developer to just scan through the code and some of the other developers on his team to see if there's any kind of screwy stuff. And you know, just look at the licenses and you know, just have to say these are the licenses we can work with. And and if the license is not there, heck, just contact the author and see if he can add it to the stack or whatever. You know. Right. Sure. So, you know, there's, there's, there's some options there. Um, and I think we've got to have more confidence to, to do that. To actually take advantage of it. Yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm writing a lot of libraries. I'm really lazy when it comes to this whole licensing deal. I just kind of throw it up there and say whatever. And, you know. <laughs> Hope for the best. <laughs> well, I mean, I put them out there. It's stuff that I, a lot of times it's stuff that I do based on like need. I'm like, ah, you know, this is good enough to share with the, there's, there's a lot of them that I don't put up on GitHub. I've got a lot of repos in Bitbucket that are hidden. You know, right? Um, and it's just stuff that I'm kind of working on that I'm like, I don't know if I want to put this out there because it may be too crazy or just it's just it's really just me kind of testing ideas out. I don't want it to get out there in public and people say, "Oh, this guy doesn't know what he's doing" or whatever. Because I'm half the time I'm just testing a new pattern or something, right. you know? Right. Um, and sometimes it's you know like Bootstrap. Um, a lot of people think I don't like Bootstrap. I actually do like Bootstrap. I just don't like the parts that I don't need. Kind of Bootstrap. Mm -hmm. <laughs> ah, I see. 
So uh, I do pull parts of Bootstrap out, but I don't use the components because they're tightly coupled to jQuery, and I don't want to be tightly coupled to any library like that if I don't have to. If it was coupled more or less to the interface of jQuery, that would be a different story. But I think it's it's too tightly coupled, and it needs to uh, find a way to kind of break that. Because yeah, there's there's a lot of jQuery-like libraries. In fact, I I wrote one one after one Saturday afternoon that implements most of the functions of jQuery that I actually use. And uh, it's, uh, you know, it's like 8K altogether, right? Uh, but there's at least a dozen others that I found that are almost identical. Um, I did it kind of as an exercise to see if I could do it. And, you know, I can swap out jQuery with it uh, in any of my applications just fine. But, you know, I'd rather have 8K than, you know, 110K in there. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the other thing, too. Uh, I listened to uh, John Papa's interview this morning. And there was something in there, I think your comment was about Greenfield and Brownfield development in that one. Yeah. Yep. I think we're actually in a place right now, it's not about Brownfielding existing applications. I think we were kind of in a place where we, we need to really start accepting the fact we need to kind of Greenfield the existing application. I don't necessarily know what color to call that, but uh, it's really a refactoring uh, because we've got, we really got this silo uh, effect, right? And so like, if you go to our presentations, I talk about the the, the silhouette of a, of a modern web application is more like an hourglass where you've got a real complicated bottom, you've got a real complicated top, and you've got a little aperture in the middle where they communicate, which is the API. And uh, right now it's kind of too, too tightly coupled where a lot of that top is in that middle layer where it's really thin uh, and it should be, or you know, it's really fat there where it should be really thin. And so we need to kind of refactor how we've designed those front ends. And that'll give it the, I think it gives, gives you a chance to kind of refactor and start making it have a real true API. And that'll make it a lot more flexible for you going forward too. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got all these legacy applications, right? And most of them are written in IE8 land. And some of these companies have, you know, tens, twenties of thousands of these applications. I don't even know necessarily what they have that's being used anymore. And so they're really afraid to to really upgrade the internal stuff, right? And uh, we've got to get to the point where we realize, hey, we've got to find what applications are being used and then start figuring out, can we start upgrading those things? Because what's going to happen, and I've, I've seen this several times over the last year going in and out of enterprises, there's uh, critical applications that may not be critical to the, the core of the business necessarily, but critical to the process that goes on inside the, the company um, that like there was one I had to use this summer. It was written in 1998. Wow. It did not go well. And the company, <laughs> and, I, and I sent a comment, I sent a comment to the owners of the, of the, the, the application because everybody in the company has to use this application. Yeah. I said, um, you realize this application's more or less dead man walking. We had to go find a laptop that was about to die running, running Vista, they had, wow. a, they had an unpatched version of IE8 so that we could run this thing because otherwise we could not run this application and and complete the thing that we had to do to, to do our job. Yeah, that's a zombie thing going right there. And, uh, well, their, their comment back to me, I mean, and, and honestly, the person didn't really know. He was just like the help desk guy. He's like, well, we're sorry you had a hard time, but glad you finished it and closed the ticket, you know. <laughs> but, you know, the reality is, uh, the CSS didn't work. It had it was using techniques that are no security flaws, and yeah. those those have been locked down in every browser now. Uh, so it literally would not run unless you know, we just happened to find this old machine that we could sit there and do the tasks that we needed to do. You need to virtualize that old machine. Uh, yeah, because that that's going to die. I mean, the hardware is physically going to die. 
Yeah. Um, but because that application is essentially tightly coupled to the past, it's it's not necessarily that easy to just update the front end to make it work with the new stuff. And this is something that's going to hit uh, everybody really hard over the next year. Yeah, sooner or later. I mean, IE8's finally going out of support, right? With 365 days from the time we were recording. Wow. <laughs> Got it nailed down. Yeah, yeah. What's that in seconds? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, just so everybody's aware, on January 16th, uh, 2016. It's over. It's over. One more is done. You know, I really do, th- you know, the whole concept of brownfield development, what it's about, we've done some shows on this recently, yep. is this idea of strapping modern management tools around an old code base so that you can change it, so that you don't have to rewrite the whole thing and do a big bang replacement, it's so that you can start fixing those things and know you're not going to break a whole lot of other stuff. Let me tell you a real quick trick that will fix a lot of these applications. It takes seconds. They probably don't have a doc type in the header or the markup. Yeah, right. That'll that'll fix a lot of layout issues right there. Sure, and that also lets you kick in, uh, you, you know, IE. You can run the IE8 parser lives in every version of IE since. You can tell a page you're IE8, and it'll run on any of those browsers. It, it does, and it doesn't. Right. So if you go to compatibility mode, use an XUA compatible header, not meta tag guys. Use a header. Right. Uh, um, it uses a, a probably a 95% compatible one. What enterprises need to do is upgrade to the latest IE, use enterprise mode for those. Uh, what they got to do is internally turn it on and they can, they can um, indicate which URLs and domains inside the company need to run in that, that IE eight mode. And so that you make it go into enterprise mode because what's going to happen is there they've they've got this on the blog i think better better be careful what i'm saying here but you're going to have to use enterprise mode to effectively use that backward compatibility and the reason right. why you want to do it is that's that's where the focus is going to be on making a a place where those legacy applications can run and that's where they're actually going to focus their energies and they're making a truly ie compatible experience there including like activex control stuff that's that's disabled now but it's also running within the wall of like the security wall of IE 11. And they've also optimized the JavaScript engine to run faster. So you're going to get some, 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 you know, some feature upgrades, but at the same time, you're going to be able to run those legacy applications without having to upgrade them so soon because no, no company's got millions and millions of dollars to upgrade 10,000 applications that mm-hmm. they wrote back in 2003 and yeah. four. Um, and then, you know, went through and essentially did a Y2K kind of update to make them work in 2008, you know. So this could, this will give you a little more life to kind of provision that that out over time, right? Yeah, keep you out of trouble for a while. Yeah, so yeah, um, if you're an enterprise and you've got those, because and this will pretty much kill the whole Stack Overflow threads of it doesn't work in IE because they think it's IE8. Um, you know, they don't really have to worry about it. You should not really be programming anything new to target IE8. Right. And, <laughs> and this is, this is where the trick comes in. If you've got a consumer site and you do have traffic that are on these legacy browsers, what do you do then? Right. Um, I still say don't target your modern experience to IE because you're going to pull your hair out doing it. And it's really expensive to do. Well, this is where the whole IE six thing came from, right? At some point <laughs> somebody goes, it's costing me more to implement this than the rest of the site. Mm. I'm just going to put up a dialogue that says you need a new browser, dude. Right. 
Right. And I think you're going to see more and more consumer-facing experiences essentially do that again. And um, they're just not going to bother with it. Now, what I tell people they, they probably should do if it's a consumer-facing site is use the concept of a core site. And that's where you do feature detection. And if it cuts the mustard, and that's the term that I pulled from because I first heard this concept uh, in a presentation from developers at The Guardian, which is the British newspaper. And uh, what, it does, what you do is you just do some basic feature detection. If it cuts the mustard and meets those features, then you give them the, the modern application. If not, you bounce back to the server and you get a kind of low-definition version. Right. And that really, that really is one that you know, would be your standard ASP.NET web forms type of experience or huh. server server rendered thing. Now, I'm going to tell you one thing. It solves two problems at once. Yeah. Not, not only do you get do you have a usable experience for those old browsers, especially if you've got an existing application, just use the one you got, right? Because it already yep. works. But that's the version that the search engines want too. And Google actually has the specification defined to it's called it's the escape underscore fragment. And what it wants is it wants the server rendered content that you would then actually have in your modern Ajax driven experience. So this core site can serve two purposes for you at one, one, one turn right there. Yeah. And that's the idea is not to have to write multiple sites multiple times. Right. Right. And what I tell people too is even if you've started Greenfield and you need that core site for the search engines, don't put a whole lot of effort worried about the styling of it. Just make sure it's reasonably readable. Functional. Yeah. And you can still post forms right. back, things like that. It, so that's, that's what we call a, a progressive enhancement scenario. So. Um, so that, that's, that's a concept too. And that, that kind of scares people too. They're, I'm like, you know, especially when I go on these enterprises, I'm like, you already have the application, just use it. Right. And start fresh, you know? So, so when I'm talking about, you can, you can kind of uh, side, I guess, build a new client experience altogether. You can, you can still use that legacy stuff until you deem it no longer, you know, needed effectively. Um, I think the the bigger problem is if you've got it sitting on servers is how long are those servers going to physically be around too, you know, because yeah. eventually your IT staff is going to forget how to set up IS5 or IS6. <laughs> Jeez. It's an age-old problem. Well, in 2003, <laughs> R2 is end-of-lifing this year too. So IIS6 yep. downwards, all legacy. Yep. Um, you know, and, and like the IE, IE9, the only life it's going to have is, is Vista and Server 2008 R2. And I'm thinking, okay, Vista's got like less than a 1% market share now. And how many people browse the web from servers? Yeah. Only when I need to install something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're installing Chrome because you get tired of getting, getting all those dialogues that pop yeah, up at yeah, you. Exactly. Saying you're not a, you have to add it to the uh, internet zone or whatever. So. But it seems to me that IE8 sort of the last crufty IE. Yeah, it really is. IE9's market share is really low. IE10... Uh, was pretty much automatically updated to IE11. Yeah. So the, those market shares are very minimal. So yeah, you really have IE11 and you have IE8 in the IE space. Yeah, and that's it. Which brings us to Safari, <laughs> which I've heard described as the new IE6 in the sense that it has massive market share. People are unwilling to move from it, and it and it's a so and its support for modern standards is archaic. Um, I wouldn't say that. Um. It's got good market share with the iPad. The Macs or the MacBooks themselves are are growing, but I think a lot of those people install Chrome. Um, in fact, one of the things the girls at the startup told me that I thought was amazing is that most of their friends install 
the Chrome for the iPhone on their iPhone and use that. Interesting. And I'm like, really? I've never even talked to anybody that knew there was a Chrome for the iPhone except yeah, for no like kidding. super techies, you know? Yeah, it's the problem with branding and software. You know, a software version from one to the other could be a completely different product. You know, written mm-hmm. by totally different people. Yeah. The only thing that's the same is the name and the font. Well, you know, Netflix kind of does that, right? They have a team for the Xbox. They have a team for PlayStation. They have a team for the Wii. They have a team for the iPad and, and so on and so on. And I've even heard they actually write their own API interfaces. And yeah, I believe I'm like, it. That's, I'm like, that's really kind of odd. Um, that's a lot of that's a lot of overlap work, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, you know, some of these companies they want ultimate control. They don't have to call anybody when when there's a problem. So they write everything. Yeah, I agree. I just think we're at a time now where more than ever the walled garden approach looks like a failure. Closed environments don't make sense anymore. Mm-hmm. And I'm a, and I've been a Microsoft guy for a long time and lived in a closed world. But boy, once you start living out in the open world, it's way better. And I'm looking at you, Apple. They're the ones who are struggling with it. Yeah. 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 They really are. And, you know, well, I, I would say Chrome in a way and Google is, is kind of there. I'm, I'm actually looking at kind of making a comment lately that I kind of see Google trending to the place where Microsoft was about 10 years ago and huh. Microsoft and Microsoft trending to where Google was five or six years ago. <laughs> it's funny how it comes around. Yeah. Hey, Chris, where are you going to be speaking next? Or is, is there anything, any place we should be looking for you online? Uh, well, a couple things. Uh, I am speaking at the South Florida Code Camp, um, making a triumphant return to a place I lived for a year and really enjoyed the community down there and nice. kind of missed them. So I'm going to go back for the Code Camp on February 7th. And awesome. I've got a session. I've got one session on, I'm going to kind of make it a very introductory to spa concept kind of uh, talk. And I think I'm doing a performance optimization talk to go along with that one. And uh, I've got uh, submissions into other places. Uh, I haven't got any confirmations back. The uh, I will be in Dallas. Uh, I think we're calling it Mix MVP this year. It has been the DallasData.net, but the yeah. Chander's changed the name. Um, that's I think March or May. I can't remember off the top of my head. But there's a few other places I'm, I'm waiting to either be able to submit and, and hear back from, or vice versa, kind of thing. Uh, another thing I'm trying, I'm going to probably start by the time this gets published, is really formalize my YouTube channel and start utilizing it a little more than, than I have. I've got like six posts right now, but I've got a bunch more videos. I think I'm just going to try, start trying to record some short videos and, and see how that goes for the next few months and, and uh, kind of show how some of these concepts can be executed that we, we've been talking about today. Awesome. Well, I can't wait. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you, Chris, for talking to us. It's been a pleasure. It always is. Oh, great talking to you guys. All right, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. 
See you next time. Got a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a